We are in a new series entitled The Lost Parables of Jesus, and to be completely transparent, I have one overarching reason for dedicating the next three weeks to this portion of Scripture. To put it simply, I want God's Spirit through God's Word to do something. I want God's Spirit through God's Word to do something inside of all of us who call ourselves God's people. That's the hope. And what is that specifically? Well, without being shy about my intentions, I hope that every person who considers himself a part of Clarity Church would recapture, or maybe capture for the first time, a vision for their own lives and for this church that you're a part of. That comes from God alone and not from the things this world wants us to believe are the ultimate things to live for. You know what I'm talking about. Good income, good savings, good deeds. and Maybe, if you're lucky, good relationships. On top of that, there's a growing trend within the community of people who claim to be followers of Jesus to cast a new vision of the nature of God's mission. I don't know if you know this, but... Even within the circles of Christendom, there is this new vision that people are trying to cast regarding the mission of God in the world, the nature of God's church outside of the influence and guidance of the scripture. And so I hope that taking intentional time to listen to Jesus teach through these lost parables, I hope that this time would equip us and empower us to live the kind of lives that God desires. Now, if you're someone who doesn't know whether you believe everything you've heard about the Jesus in the Bible, you maybe you don't know where exactly you stand with Jesus, this is a great opportunity for you to engage in a series where we're trying to paint a clear picture, so to say, of what Jesus understood was his purpose for coming into our world as a baby, living a sinless and perfect life, and dying a criminal's death. And in doing so, I think you'll catch a fresh perspective on what God thinks about you when he thinks about you. So, Luke chapter 15, have you found it? We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 together. Let's just take a look at this. Luke chapter 15. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. What man among you, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field? And go after the lost one until he finds it. And when he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people don't need repentance. Would you pray with me before we dive in this morning? Heavenly Father in heaven, 
There are not many times where your church gathers, where the people who love and follow you gather to not only proclaim our desire to increasingly submit all our life to you as Master and Savior, but there's not many times where we come together for your Holy Spirit to speak to us corporately by your word. And I pray today, God, that you would speak to our hearts and that you would stir us, O oh God, that you would place our paths on a trajectory that has been dictated by your will, your way. And that our value systems about what's important and what we should strive after would be guided by your truth. Would you search our hearts, O oh God, if there's any wrong way within us, would you with your loving in corrective hand. Lead us to repentance this morning. That we would see the heart of God through this teaching of the Son of God who came to seek and save the lost. In your name I pray. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, says verse 1. And verse 2 goes in, the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Don't be mistaken, there were times when Jesus drew crowds by doing miracles, by doing, you know, by, by healing people, by doing things that just really wanted people to see what was going on. He drew crowds because of the very nature of the fact that he was doing things that nobody could explain. But this time around, it appears that the crowds were leaning into Jesus, not because of the chance that their lives could be improved or that they could watch the lives of other people be improved or made better because they were following him. But they were leaning into him because he was teaching about what it will cost someone to become a disciple. This is chapter 14, by the way. The context before we head into chapter four, uh, 15 is Luke explaining, Jesus teaching, here's what it means to be my disciples. Unless you, unless your love for me is in comparison to my love for me, your love for other people, like your family, your if, it's, if it doesn't seem as if though it's hate, you can't be my disciple. If you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Listen, if you don't, if you don't give up everything you have, if you're not willing to do that, then you cannot be my disciple. This is the context where we find ourselves in chapter 15. And a message like this today, we think this is a message that would scare people away, right? Like nobody, nobody thinks of like evangelism as a call to people who are far from Christ to say, hey, everything that you love, everything that you value, give it up and follow Jesus. But this was the call. And here we have people leaning in, tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen in, to see what this guy who was a carpenter's son from Nazareth, had to say about what it means to follow him. And so it's in the presence of the most pious and observant Jewish traditions uh, uh, and, and experts in Jewish law, Jesus is found giving audience to the kind of people no one thought would embrace the challenge to take up their cross and give everything 
to become his disciples. Tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus, and Jesus welcomed them. He even, he even eats with them, which was considered an offense in the Mishnah, which if you're familiar with Jewish law or tradition, the Mishnah is the collection of oral traditions or explanations and examples of the interpretations, interpretations of the Torah, where we talked about this in our series, how to read the Bible. The Torah is what the first five books of the Old Testament or Bible, right? And so these were the oral traditions that a lot of the Jewish believe were given by God to Moses, but weren't written down, but they held weight as if though they were even just as important as the Ten Commandments, believe it or not. And seeing Jesus surrounded by people of disreputable character, leaning into Jesus, and Jesus allowing himself to be accused of guilt by association by just eating with them, didn't just confuse the Pharisees. It annoyed them to the point that they were found, as the scripture says here, they were what? Complaining. Now, I love the literal translation of this word, complaining. It's actually almost kind of like an onomatopoeia. You know what onomatopoeia is, right? What's onomatopoeia? Where the sounds, where it looks like has it sounds, right? If you ever watched old school Batman, whap! Bam! Boom! Shriek! Right? Like that's, that's onomatopoeia. Well, the word here in Greek actually is a word that is meant to mimic the cooing of doves. Okay? It's, it's actually the sound doves make when they're cooing. And more specifically, it's used to describe a sound what people make when they grumble under their breath. You know, the kind of grumble you hear people make when something they don't like happens. I mean, we're in Minnesota, so this happens a lot, right? Wow, that's an interesting choice of clothing, right? It's that grumbling under the breath that's kind of just loud enough so that people kind of know you're not happy, but it's not loud enough so that when people say, what did you say? You'd be like, oh, no, uh, nothing. I I didn't say anything at all, right? If you, if you, if you ever work with teenagers, you, know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. Excuse me. Did you have a problem with something I said? Teenager. I didn't say nothing, right? That's, that's kind of how it goes. I didn't say nothing. <laughs> but they're saying everything, right? And why were the Pharisees and scribes complaining? They had a view of God that led them to believe that there were certain kinds of people who, because of the choices they made in the past, were unworthy of being present not only among holy people, but much less present among the presence of a man who called himself the Son of God. So, what does Jesus do? Well, he tells them, a set of parables. And if you're unfamiliar with what a parable is in the context of Scripture, a parable is simply just a story or a saying that Jewish rabbis would often tell to explain passages of Scripture or illustrate an interpretation of a passage already provided. 
And this is, <laughs> this is interesting for two different reasons. Um, the first one is more ironic than it is interesting. Jesus answers the criticism of the religious leaders and experts of the law in the same way that these religious leaders would try to make plain to those without as much education or experience with the law. Like Jesus uses a tactic that religious leaders would use when they see people who don't really understand a lot of theology. They, they look at them and like, oh, you can't go really deep. So here am I. I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you an illustration of what God is like or what this passage, I'm going to, I'm going to give you an illustration because you're not smart enough to know. So I'm going to explain this to you. And so Jesus kind of starts in with this type of storytelling that the religious leaders would often use to, in its best case scenario, to explain to people who don't really understand the greater depths of theological understanding of the scripture. <laughs> but at its worst, a kind of patronizing to those who were the little people for whom which we were obliged to share the truths of Yahweh. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, okay, Pharisees and scribes, I know you think you're brilliant, but you're actually missing the mark. Right now, you think you're all that, but you are actually missing the mark. So let me explain something to you about God. As if though you don't know anything about God. I'm going to tell you a parable. So that's a, at least one ironic thing that's interesting. But the second thing, the second thing that I think is really important to realize about Jesus t- telling a parable is Jesus is using a parable that is interesting because it is understood that he was in the presence of people who were considered sinners. This meant that the decisions of their lives pointed to the fact that they either had a very unclear picture of what God's standards were, or they were people who didn't care about God's standards or value their own desires more than they did God's. And because of this, Jesus knew that trying to answer the Pharisees and scribes' criticism of this reason for associating with tax collectors and sitters with the formal exposition of the scripture regarding the nature of God towards sinners. Like he could have just said, hey, Pharisees, calm down. Like God loves sinners. Right? And he could expound it in the Old Testament. But instead of doing that, instead of doing that, Jesus decides to set to tell a set of stories that even the most theologically illiterate person could grasp because that's who he was with and here's what he says in verse 4 what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it we sang about this today now i'm not an expert on the vocational realities of being a shepherd. Uh, but at first glance, it sounds like someone leaving the 99 for one sounds kind of like irresponsible. I mean, 100 sheep? I have one dog, and I can barely keep track of that one dog, right? I mean, my dog this weekend was just like throwing up everywhere, and I'm like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do, right? Like, I only have one dog. How am I going to take care of 100 sheep? This seems irresponsible. 
Well, if you happen to be an expert on shepherding during the first century, you know, there might be some of you here, you'll know that as biblical scholars note that uh, 100 sheep was a, a normal sized flock. Like that was just a normal sized flock. A good shepherd who was good at his job, 100 sheep was like, that was normal. Like I used to wait tables. And, you know, having a whole section by myself of maybe like five tables, that was normal. For the person who doesn't wait tables, if they're new, having two tables can sometimes be overwhelming. I don't know if any of you all have ever been in the service industry. But anyways, like, so 100 should have been easy. It should have been normal. Like, this is normal. And the open country was a safe place to leave the sheep. It was actually common practice that a shepherd would go when a sheep is lost would go and find that sheep and leave the 99 in most likely someone else's care. And so the question Jesus asked is a rhetorical one when he asked, who would leave the 99? The answer is, everyone would. Everyone would. Jesus isn't putting here a situation that people are like going, well, I don't know. I don't know who would leave the 99. Would you leave it? I wouldn't leave the 99. Would you leave it? No, he's saying something rhetorical. Who would Who would leave the 99? Every shepherd would. So then the question is, what is the point that Jesus is making, right? Well, I like how one Bible scholar put it. He said this, the whole point of the parable is that the only thing different about this sheep is that it's lost. Imagine the impact of this on the repentant sinners who heard the stories. They didn't have to earn God's love or Jesus's respect. He loved coming, looking for them. And celebrated finding them. Jesus wasn't saying that one sheep was more important than another. Jesus was saying that the important thing was that the sheep needed to be connected to the shepherd. But what this parable also reveals is the nature of God's heart for those who are disconnected from him. Those who are lost. Verse 5. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, (laughs) I don't know what kind of church you grew up in, what kind of Sunday school you went to. I grew up hearing uh, an over-allegorical version of this story that often used what is actually a myth, by the way, and some of you are going to be like, oh, you, you're ruining it for me. That was like my favorite part of the story. But I just want to tell you, it's a myth. I've like done tons of homework trying to figure out whether this is a true story or not. But some of you might have heard this. Maybe an evangelist came here and was like trying to get everyone to start crying. Like, let's go to the altar, let's go. And so they would tell the story because it's actually a really good story, but it's not true, which says that, uh, you know, the shepherd, he would find the sheep and then he would do what with its legs. See, some of you, yeah, you went to say that he would break the legs, right? And so then, and that's why he's carrying him on his shoulder. And so then he had to, he had to be near to him, then, then, you know, be near to him. So then when the leg finally healed, that, you know, he was used to, to following the shepherd. That's actually 
not a very, it's actually not, it's just not true. It's just not, it's just a good, it's a good, it's a good idea, but it's not true. But here's, here's, here's what is true. Some of you are like, you just ruined it for me. But the real story is actually even better. Like you don't need that made up story to get the point of what Jesus was trying to communicate. What is true about God, who is a good shepherd, by the way, this is about God, the good shepherd. According to our passage, as one Bible scholar puts it, is this. Jesus is stressing both by parable and direct statement that his seeking and receiving sinners pleases God. Like the fact that Jesus was on a mission to seek and to save sinners brought pleasure to the heart of God. So, what is it that we're supposed to take away from this passage? Well, let me share just a couple observations about these stories in case they already not stand out to you. I think one of the most obvious things that Jesus is communicating here is this, that People who are disconnected from God are a priority for God. Like, do you, do you know that the people in your life who are far from God, the people within your spheres of influence, that you might not even know them, but they're there, they matter to God. I just want to say that again because I don't know if, if we wrestle with that. Like, people who are disconnected from God matter to God. I would even go as far as saying they're a priority for God. And while that doesn't seem like anything mind-blowing to observe from this passage, the harder truth to wrestle with is that the things that matter to God's heart should be the things that matter to our heart. Like the things that matter to the heart of God should also be the things that matter to the people of God. I don't know if you've thought about the priorities of your life in that sense. I don't know if you've thought about the things you're aiming for in that sense. I don't know if you have thought about the decisions you make and where it takes you. And if you've considered that, by the way... Jesus is overtly going out of his way to say, all of heaven rejoices over one. And there is, this is a struggle. I, 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 I don't mean to, <laughs> to hammer this point, but I get the struggle. 
I get the struggle. There is a struggle because, listen, I want to be treated on the basis of how I think people should treat me. And so, therefore, I treat people on how valued they are to me. I mean, think about it. If we're honest with ourselves, don't, don't, don't we sometimes treat people in the way that we feel they're valuable to us? And I know some of you are like, you know, I treat everyone the same. Mm. Think about the people you've called this week, you've texted this week. But yet they're all your friends. But I could probably look and see on your text, oh, who's pinned on your iPhone? Like, who's pinned to the top? And who's, who's, right? It's just, it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying, this is how we treat others. We treat people based on how valuable they are to us. And not on how valuable they are to somebody else, because that would be dumb. And certainly, we forget, and many people don't at all, treat others based on the value they are to God. I mean, if there's some benefit in it for me, then I want to get to know that person. But if there isn't, then I couldn't care less, right? I don't have time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? And isn't that how we operate? <laughs> before, you, before you start feeling like super guilty. Listen, this is human nature. Like this, this is actually okay. You could admit this is how we live our lives. And while it's commonplace for Christians to scoff at the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus, when we read the Bible, <laughs> Pharisees, <laughs> can't believe them, those hypocrites. It might be more helpful in our journey towards submitting all of life to Jesus as Master and Savior to stop questioning the skeptics of Jesus and maybe question ourselves. For instance, you might be able to ask yourself this question. Hey, me, how many sinners and outcasts have I eaten with recently? Hey, uh, me, how many people have I judged rather than showed compassion to? Because when you look at your everyday rhythms, how many of your choices are motivated by a desire to be someone who, like Jesus, finds joy in seeking and saving the lost? When you look at your everyday rhythms, how many of your choices, how much of your time has been invested in the thing that made Jesus' heartbeat while he was here on earth. I'm quoting a lot from N.T. Wright today, mostly because I really like his commentary on this passage. But he says this, this is why there's a party going on. All heaven is having a party, the angels are joining in, and if we don't have one as well, we'll be out of tune, I like what he says here, 
with God's reality. Have you decided to follow Jesus? Then allow me to ask you this question. How long has it been since you've been in tune with God's reality? Have you ever been since you believed? So people who are disconnected from God are a priority to God. That's the obvious takeaway. But the second and the last thing as we close here, the second observation is that when something is missing, you search for it to the exclusion of what is found. When something is missing, you search for it to the exclusion of what is found. God loves everyone equally. This is true. But like good parents who love their children equally, do they treat their kids the same? All the parents. Do you treat all your kids the same? No, you don't know yet. <laughs> if you're a kid who has siblings, did your parents treat you guys all the same? No, they loved you all equally, hopefully. Some of you are like, no, they loved me more. <laughs> But God loves everyone equally, but he does not treat everyone equally. God loves everyone equally, but he does not focus on everyone equally. If you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with what Jesus is saying when it says, more than. There's something very deep theologically to understand here. And God loves everyone equally, and love demands that those who are lost and disconnected require more Focus and concern than those who are found than to think anything else is just selfish arrogance. I mean, have you ever lost a kid, even for a few seconds? The feeling of panic that comes over you <laughs> in those moments, it's absolutely terrifying. You lose your mind, and in those precious few moments, you search frantically to find the one thing that went missing. And by the way, that's called good parenting. <laughs> because when something is missing, you search for it to the exclusion of everything that is found. Jesus said it like this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Listen, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you have allowed me to be your pastor, I, I want you to know this. I love you. I really do. And there's a place for you in God's family as a part of this church. But you need to know this. Simply finding yourself as a part of the family was never the end game for why we started Clarity. We started Clarity because we wanted to be a church of people who are disciples that make disciples. And as your pastor, I've been in 
incredibly selfish and arrogant over the last couple of years. And I don't mean that in a bad way, because my main heart was to make sure this church, this group of people were good. Like we were good, that we were going to survive through COVID and we were going to love each other and we're going to still feel like God has a plan for our lives. But I have forgotten to remind us that we exist so that the lost could be found. And that's what I want us to think about over these next couple weeks. Because I believe, here's what I'm going to say. You stick with us for this year. You'll either have the choice to jump on board (laughs) and see the amazing work that I believe God is going to accomplish. Because I've talked with many of you. You are ready to see God work through this church. Or you can sit on the sidelines and wonder why your church is changing. But either way, we are going to be focused on seeking and saving the lost. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Not that we can save them, but we understand that God has a mission and he is accomplishing it through whom? Us. And so, I am warning us all, it's time to go to work. It's time to go to work, and the work is worth it. But I'll give you a fair warning, though. (laughs) Living to see lost people become found is not an easy task. It takes time. It takes time to seek just as it takes time for people in your spheres of influence who are lost to trust you enough to help lead them towards the journey of faith in Jesus so that they are found. It takes time. And it even takes more time for someone's life to be transformed into the image of Jesus. But it's okay. Because one day... As the scripture tells us, we're going to have rest. We're going to have rest. And we're going to ultimately find our rest in God. For eternity. But until then, why don't we just go ahead and be the kind of people who put our hands to the plow to do the work of seeking and saving the lost with joyful expectation that through our lives, God will see that the lost are found. Let's just do that. And let's see what God can accomplish.